Hello, I'm Mike Lindell, inventor of my pillow, here to tell you about my Giza Dream bed sheets. I made sure that they would be everything you'd ever want in a sheet set. I started with the world's finest cotton called Giza. It's only grown in a region where the Sahara Desert, the Nile River, and the Mediterranean Sea all meet. The long staple cotton makes my Giza Dream sheets ultra soft and durable. They come with extra wide pillowcases to fit over any pillow and extra deep pockets to fit over any mattress. Not only that, they come with my 60-day money-back guarantee and a 10-year warranty. And now you can get the best sheets ever for the best price ever. When you buy one of my Giza Dream bed sheet sets, you'll get another one absolutely free. I personally guarantee that they'll be the most comfortable sheets you'll ever own. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the Radio Listener Specials for the buy one, get one free offer on Giza Sheets. All you got to do, Renegade Nation, is enter the promo code RENEGADE or call 1-800-889-6817 for these great specials. That's 1-800-889-6817. Use the promo code RENEGADE. Please be aware, the stories, theories, reenactments, and language in this podcast are of an adult nature and can be considered disturbing, frightening, and in some cases, even offensive. Listener discretion is therefore advised. Welcome, heathens. Welcome to the world of the weird and unexplained. I am your host, Nicole Delacroix, and together we will be investigating stories about the things that go bump in the night. Frighteningly imagined creatures, supernatural beings, and even some unsolved mysteries. But I promise, all sorts of weirdness. So, sit back, grab your favorite drink, and Prepare to be transported to today's Dark Enigma. And on today's Dark Enigma, well, we have a listener suggestion. And today we're diving deep into the true crime pool. That's right. We got some true crime going on today. So with that said, we will still be playing our drinking game. And as you know, the drinking game is only for those of us that are at home and, well, have nowhere else to go tonight. The choice of libation, as always, my darlings, is yours, so choose your poison accordingly. All right, now for the game part. How about every time I say murder? And no, I'm not going to say it like that every time because I know it annoys you guys. (laughs) But you know I love to say it like that because it sounds funny. All right, so murder is going to be a single shot. And every time I say jack. That's going to be a double shot. Don't get too excited. We're not doing Jack the Ripper. No, 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 we're not. We're getting close, though, and you're going to love this one. All right. Now that the business end is out of the way, we can jump headfirst into today's Dark Enigma. So don your Sherlock hat, grab your great big magnifying glass, and get prepared as we dive into today's offering of Jack the Stripper. And the Hammersmith nude murder. I told you it's not Jack the Ripper. It's close. It's Jack the Stripper. Okay. Anyways, on the morning of June 17th, 1959, during a patrol of Duke Meadows, an area with the rather crude nickname of Gobbler's Gulch, police discovered the dead body of 21-year-old Elizabeth Figg. 
Elizabeth Fig, also known as Anne Phillips, was found with her body slumped against a small willow tree. She had been strangled to death. The victim also had scratches on her throat, and her clothing had been ripped open. It was also stated that her underwear and shoes were missing, as well as her purse. Despite an extensive search of the area, these items were not found. The proprietor of a nearby public house, called The Ship, stated he and his wife had seen a car parked up in that area around five minutes after midnight. Not long after the driver turned off the headlights of the car, the couple claimed to have heard a woman's scream, but sadly they didn't investigate further. Fig's boyfriend, Fenton Ward, was an early suspect in the murder, obviously. He was known to beat Fig on occasion and was also known to act as her pimp. However, Ward was soon ruled out of the murder after police inquiries. Due to the location in which the body was found, a known site where sex workers would take their clients and the missing items, the police came up with another theory. They believed Fig had been murdered in a client's car after removing the missing items to have sex, and the items had been left in the car. To many that look into the Hammersmith nude murders, Elizabeth Fig isn't considered a victim of Jack the Stripper. And, as you will see, there are several differences between the other victims and Elizabeth Fig. However, she is worthy of our consideration. Some four years after the murder of Elizabeth Fig, on November the 8th, 1963, the body of Gwyneth Rees was discovered at a council dump site in Mortlake. Barely a mile from where Fig was discovered, Rees was left naked with the exception of a stocking rolled down on her right leg in a shallow grave. She was believed to have been strangled using a ligature and several of her teeth were missing. It is also said that she was decapitated by a workman's shovel by a worker at the dump site. But I haven't been able to find anything out about that. So whether that's true or not, it's gruesome, but it's up in the air. Sorry. Originally from Wales, Rees had gone to London after falling out with her family and unfortunately with an unwanted pregnancy. Sadly, despite wanting a better life, Rees, like so many young women at this time, fell into prostitution. Interestingly, her pimp was a known associate of infamous criminals of the time, Ronnie and Reggie Cray. Cornelius Connie Whitehead was well known for giving his girls a good thumping and was reported to be looking for Rees just before her disappearance, thus making him a solid suspect in Rees' murder. Another theory for Gwyneth's murder was that it was an illegal abortion gone wrong. Rees, of course, had found herself pregnant and was said to have been asking fellow prostitutes for anyone that they knew who could perform an abortion. At this time, it's well to note that abortion was still illegal in the United Kingdom. Rees had gone through such procedures twice previously, but questions remain about that theory. Mainly, if it was an abortion gone wrong, then why strangle her? Doesn't make sense. The abortion angle just doesn't seem to hold any water. 
With little real evidence, a lack of communication and trust between the police and the prostitutes, and a feeling amongst the public that sex workers' lives weren't overly important, Gwyneth Rhee's death went unsolved and was, unfortunately, quickly forgotten. Again, as was the case with Elizabeth Figg, it is disputed as to whether or not Rees was a victim of Jack the Stripper. There are a few differences compared to the other murders, such as the dump site, but there are far more similarities between Rees' murder and those confirmed as part of the Hammersmith nude series of murders. On February 2, 1964, Hannah's body was found by rowers on the banks of the River Thames. She was naked, with the exception of some rolled-up stockings. Her underwear, reportedly covered in semen, had been shoved in her mouth. Some accounts suggest Telford was also missing her front teeth. However, this is, a question is as questionable as it doesn't appear to be mentioned in the coroner's report. The postmortem concluded that the cause of death was drowning, and she also had bruising on both sides of her jaw. The coroner had also concluded that she had been in the water anywhere from two to seven days. Hannah Telford was reported missing 10 days before her body was discovered. And it is widely recognized that Hannah Telford is the first official victim of Jack the Stripper. Interesting to note, though, is that the coroner considered a judgment of suicide to begin with. And that, well, sounds pretty unlikely given that the underwear was in her mouth, but it is interesting. Hannah, like several other victims, wasn't originally from London, but had found her way there as a teenage runaway. Like others, she too quickly found herself working as a prostitute as a way to get by. There are many stories that have been told about Hannah, and it's hard to work out which are true and which aren't. Hannah was believed to be involved in the making of sex tapes and working at sex parties. One story is that while working at a sex party for a rich and powerful person, she was supposedly taken to a house and paid to have sex with a man in a gorilla suit while bystanders watched on and applauded. I'm just going to note, that's a pretty specific kink. Just saying. Another story was that Telford put an ad in her local paper trying to sell her unborn baby to the highest bidder. Despite these stories, there can be little question that Hannah had at least worked sex parties. Due to Hannah's history of working at these said parties for the members of high society, it has been theorized that her murder and others in the series may well be connected to high society and these sex parties. Police interviewed hundreds of people in regards to the murder, particularly those that were known to have used prostitutes. One even was reported to be an international footballer. That's soccer for us Americans. Despite the high number of people interviewed about the murder, no one was arrested for the murder of Hannah Tailford. And just nine weeks later, another woman would fall prey to this killer. On April 8, 1964, just a few hundred yards upstream from where the body of Hannah Tailford was discovered, the body of 26-year-old Irene Lockwood was found. Unfortunately, it is hard to decipher what is fact and what is fiction when it comes to the death of Irene Lockwood, as no coroner's report seems to exist. It does appear that she had been strangled with a ligature of some kind, but that her actual cause of death was drowning. 
She was also found naked, and it's also believed she was four months pregnant at the time of her murder. Irene, again like the others, wasn't a Londoner, but had found her way there and into the dark world of prostitution. Much like Tilford, it is also strongly believed that Irene Lockwood was involved in other areas of the sex industry, such as making videos and attending parties. Irene Lockwood was also understood to blackmail her clients with the use of photographs and also to steal from them. So, just not a nice person, but, you know, whatever. Just a year before her death, a good friend of Irene's named Vicki Pender was battered to death for the same scheme. Less than three weeks after Irene Lockwood's death, on April 27th, Kenneth Archibald walked into Notting Hill Police Station and confessed to the murder of Irene Lockwood. 57-year-old Archibald worked as a caretaker at the Holland Park Tennis Club. He had already been questioned about Irene, who he claimed he didn't know, after they found a business card at her flat with his name on it. This time, Archibald told police he did know Lockwood, and on the night of her murder, he had a drunken argument with her that ended with him putting his hands around her throat and throwing her in the river. Despite this confession, the police weren't totally convinced. They were positive that Irene Lockwood's murder was connected to at least one of the previous murderers, and Kenneth Archibald had alibis for all of those crimes. More importantly, another victim was discovered just days before his confession. However, Archibald was sent to court for the murder in June of that year. Upon his trial, Archibald took back his confession to the murder of Irene Lockwood. He claimed he made the claim due to being drunk and depressed. With his confession being the only piece of evidence against Archibald, he was found not guilty and acquitted on, 23, on the 23rd of June. On April 24, 1964, just over two weeks after the murder of Irene Lockwood, police discovered the body of 22-year-old Helen Bartholomew. She had been strangled with a ligature and was naked. Her nose and cheekbone were also swollen to suggest she had been hit, and Helen was also missing three of her front teeth. Unlike Hannah Tailford and Irene Lockwood, Helen Bartholomew was found in an alleyway. Despite not being found in the water like Tilford or Lockwood, police soon made a link to those murders due to the similarities. Police had also seen a pattern emerging. All the victims were sex workers, obviously, but they were also all short in stature and, ha and all had or had recently had an STI. Helen, who described herself as a striptease artiste, had come to London from Blackpool. This came after her release from prison for a crime committed in Blackpool. Helen was accused of luring a man to the beach where he was set upon and attacked by three men. Bartholomew was originally convicted of aggravated burglary and given a four-year jail sentence. However, she was released on appeal after three months. Already a known sex worker in Blackpool, it was hardly surprising she took up the profession once in London. Known to frequent jazz clubs, it was also the police's belief that she was addicted to Indian hemp. Police got their first break in the case with the murder of Helen Bartholomew. They discovered specks of paint, the type used to spray paint cars and other metals, on the woman's body. They also believed that as the body was filthy, that it must have been stored somewhere before being dumped in the alleyway. 
Police therefore came to the conclusion that if they could find a storage place where the paint was used, they could find their killer. It is strongly suspected that Jack the Stripper left the body of Helen Bartholomew in the alleyway due to increased police presence near the riverbanks. Police decided more was needed and decided to start logging any car registration numbers seen in the areas during hours of darkness. They also started to put female officers out on the streets disguised as prostitutes in the hope of luring the killer. Sadly, this failed to help prevent Jack from striking again. And on July the 14th, seated upright against a garage entrance, the naked body of 30-year-old Mary Fleming was found. Unlike other victims who appeared to have been disposed of with the minimum of fuss, Mary's body showed signs that she had put up quite a fight. The same specks of paint found on the body of Helen Bartholomew were also present on the body of Mary Fleming. Mary had worked as a sex worker for over a decade and was known as a tough cookie. She would openly tell the story of the time she fought off an attacker who tried to strangle her. She was also wise enough to know the dangers of life working the streets and was known to carry a knife with her. Regretfully, this wasn't enough to stop her falling victim to the killer. On the morning of the murder, just before 5 a.m., and moments before Mary's body was discovered, neighbors heard a vehicle reversing down the street. Sadly, as fate would have it, no one actually saw the vehicle, and thus the killer made his escape without repercussion. The police were now starting to feel that the killer would soon make a fatal mistake, because he's made so many so far, right? They believed taking such high risks and his high levels of confidence would be the undoing of the man, whom the press had now started calling Jack the Stripper. They, of course, were mistaken. On November the 24th, 1964, the naked body of 21-year-old Frances Brown was discovered up a side street in Kensington. She had died from asphyxiation due to strangulation. Paint spots again were found on the body. One of her teeth had also been ripped from its socket. A gold ring and a chain with a silver cross were missing from the victim's body. Frances Brown possibly shared a link to the earlier victim, Hannah Tailford, as it was believed they both had a minor connection to the major political scandal known as the Profumo Affair. Brown had given evidence against Stephen Ward, who many believe was a scapegoat, and said that she was hired by him to sleep with men from the upper classes. Thanks to this connection and the belief that some of the other victims were involved in taking part in underground sex parties for the rich and powerful, several authors and people interested in the case have suggested people involved in the Profumo affair were also responsible for the Hammersmith nude murders. Frances Brown had been missing a month before her body was discovered. She was last seen getting into the car of a client by her friend and fellow prostitute Kim Taylor when the pair went off with two men separately. This again gave the police reinvigorated hope of catching Jack the Stripper, as Taylor was able to give a description of the men resulting in an identikit picture being released. Unfortunately, despite the identikit picture and interviewing over a thousand individuals, Jack the Stripper was still uncaptured and freed to strike again. 
on February 16, 1965, behind a storage shed on the Heron Trading Industrial Estate in Acton, the body of Britty O'Hara was found. The 28-year-old's body was naked and again the specks of paint, which were present on the bodies of the previous three victims, were again found on Britty O'Hara. The cause of death was asphyxiation. It is also believed that Bridget's front teeth were missing. O'Hara's body was also partially mummified. Police believe this to be from being stored in a cool, dry place for a prolonged period of time, as Bridget was actually last seen on January 11th, over a month before she was actually discovered. At this point, Detective Chief Superintendent John DeRose was called in to take charge of the Hammersmith nude murders investigation. Almost in an instant, DeRose increased the number of officers working on the case to almost double what they were before his arrival. DeRose put a massive effort into finding the origins of the paint that had been found on the bodies of the last four victims. After a search that covered over 24 square miles, they finally found a matching sample. Just feet from where Britty O'Hara's body was discovered, a match to the paint was found under a nearby transformer. Opposite the transformer was a building that was used as a paint spray shop. Police now believe the transformer was where the body of Bridget O'Hara had been stored and that they had found the killer's hideout. Now the police were convinced they were closing in on the killer known as Jack the Stripper. Detective Chief Superintendent John DeRose even gave a statement in which he stated they had whittled down their suspect list to just three names and soon it would be just one. After this statement was made, there were no more victims discovered. The Hammersmith nude murders were seemingly over. And however, despite interviewing over 7,000 individuals and investing hundreds of leads, the man the media had labeled Jack the Stripper disappeared into thin air. So what happened to Jack? Did he himself die? Was he incarcerated maybe for an unrelated crime? Did he move to a new area and start killing there or continue killing there? Or did he simply just stop? Nobody knows for certain, but several suspects have been suggested as answers to these questions. It was widely accepted that the person responsible for the Hammersmith nude murders was unknown to anyone after the murder stopped. That is, until Detective Chief Superintendent John DeRose was interviewed by the BBC and he made the shocking revelation that he knew exactly who the killer was. DeRose claimed that the killer had taken his own life as he knew his time was up. He also took credit for the suicide, claiming it was the result of the statement DeRose gave, saying they had narrowed their list to just three suspects. DeRose again reiterated his claim in his, uh, his book, Murder Was My Business. Despite this, DeRose didn't actually name the suspect, claiming it was for the sake of the murderer's relatives. However, during research into the book Jack of Jumps by David Seabrook, the man suspected of being Jack the Stripper was named as Mungo Ireland. Ireland had worked briefly as a police officer before quitting after being passed up for a detective post. He worked on the Heron Trading Industrial Estate as a security guard where the final victim was discovered and where police believed previous victims had been stored. He also drove a van very similar to the one in the area where Mary Fleming was, was dumped. 
Finally, he worked the hours of 10 p.m. to 6 a.m., which fit the times police believed victims were being dumped. In March 1965, Mungo Ireland killed himself. He committed suicide by carbon monoxide poisoning in his vehicle. Ireland left a note for his wife which read, and I quote, I can't stick it any longer. It may be my fault, but not all of it. I'm so sorry Harry is a burden to you. Give my love to the kid. Farewell, Jock. P.S. To save you and the police looking for me, I'll be in the garage. End quote. On that evidence, Mungo Ireland certainly seems a good candidate to have been Jack the Stripper. However, when picked at, there are also plenty of reasons to doubt his guilt. The biggest of all was uncovered by a journalist writing for The Sun in 1972. Owen Summers discovered that the man DeRose had claimed was the killer was in Scotland at the time of Brittany O'Hara's murder. Of course, that only rules Mungo Ireland out of being her killer, but it is pretty much a certainty that she was killed at the same hands of, se of several of the other victims. So it makes sense. Another doubt is cast on Ireland as a suspect by author David Seabrook. After investigating, he discovered Ireland had only actually worked at the Heron Trading Estate for three weeks, and other than the fact he worked there, it seemed he had no other links at all to the case. Seabrook also claimed to have found evidence to show that John DeRose was corrupt. Seabrook's belief was that to gain a final bit of glory, DeRose pinned the murders on a dead man. Finally, there also seems to be an explanation as to why he would write, quote, to save the police looking for me, end quote, in his suicide note. Ireland was due in court the morning of his suicide due to a motoring offense. His wife also admitted the pair were going through a difficult time in their marriage, which could well have been the reason for his suicide. It is therefore easy to discount some of what DeRose claimed, but one thing does make me think hard on it. If Mungo Ireland was innocent, why did his wife and other family members stand by while his name was being dragged through the mud? And why would DeRose go on TV and so confidently declare there would be no more murders and risk his own reputation if he wasn't absolutely certain? Freddie Mills was an extremely popular English boxer during the 1940s. At one point, he was even considered Britain's biggest boxing star. And in 1948, he became the light heavyweight champion of the world. He retired in 1950 at the age of 30 and took up performing as an actor. On July 24, 1965, Mills was discovered in his car. He had suffered a gunshot wound to the head and died from his injuries in hospital. The coroner concluded that the angle of the bullet was consistent with that of a self-inflicted gun wound, so it was ruled that Freddie Mills had committed suicide. Mills's death is one that has many theories in itself. One reason given for his suicide is that he was struggling to cope with debts he owed to a crime syndicate, which involved the Cray twins, and so he decided to take his own life. Related to this theory is one which suggests Mills was actually murdered because of those debts. Also theorized was another murder, this time at the hands of gangsters that wanted Mills's nightclub. Mills was adamant he wouldn't sell, despite him being broke when he died, and so was murdered instead. Another rumor was that he was having a homosexual relationship. 
his rumored gay lover, Michael Holliday, committed suicide, and it is claimed he took it badly and couldn't deal with the loss. Arthur and reformed gangster Jimmy Tippett claims that the real cause was Mills' fear he was to be arrested for the murders and revealed as Jack the Stripper. Tippett claims to have been reliably told this by several sources while researching a book that he was writing. A variant on that story passed down from a son of a gangland boss is one in which Mills and his lover Michael Holliday were both bisexual, had picked up a girl for a sadomasochistic party. Things went too far and the girl ended up dead and Michael and Mills disposed of her body. This must have been Elizabeth Fig, as the story then suggests things cooled off between the pair until a few years later. When the pair rekindled the relationship, the same thing happened again, and this leads to Holiday killing himself out of guilt. The officer in charge of investigating Freddie Mills' death has no doubts at all that he was not Jack the Stripper. These rumors were outrageous, for there is no justification for any suggestion that Freddie was, in any way, a suspect. That is what Nipper read. The investigator had to say about the theory that Mills was Jack the Stripper. He also claimed Mills's names may have been confused with another suspect who allegedly committed suicide in 1965, who was a married man and a former boxer in his 40s. Sadly, this suspect was never named. One final factor that may discount Mills is that at no point did his car number plates come up in the investigation. Police started to check every number plate seen going in and out of the West End area of London where the victims went missing. With someone of Freddie Mills' high profile, it is highly unlikely that he would have been missed. But any number of the suspects put forward by various individuals are former police officers. They range from a chief superintendent to a disgraced former officer who was jailed for burglary. David Seabrook, the author who did so much to discredit John DeRose's favored suspect, Mungo Ireland, claimed to have his own suspect. Sadly, he didn't name the suspect, presumably for fear of the libel laws. Writer Stuart Holm, however, figured out the suspect from details Seabrook had given in his book pretty easily. The main source for the suspect seems to be Detective Superintendent William Baldock. He attempted to build a case on the former police officer, but was unable to do so. The officer, who Baldock and Seabrook accused, was convicted of various petty crimes and was jailed. It was later revealed by the officer that he committed these crimes merely to make various police departments and fellow officers look foolish for the way they had treated him. Seabrook, therefore, made the case that if he was willing to commit robberies to make fellow officers look stupid, then why not murder? That's a pretty big leap. He also pointed out that each of the last six victims were left in a different police substation and believed only an officer would know to do this. Seabrook also argues that this is enough of a reason for the killer to stop the murders, as he succeeded in his aim to make the police look stupid. Baldock, Seabrook's fellow accuser, on the other hand, was of the opinion he would kill again after the death of the final victim, Brady O'Hara, which of course never happened. Questions remain about the officer as a suspect, though. The officer in question seems to have been a somewhat incompetent burglar, 
I'm guessing because, you know, he got caught. Um, And he was caught was he rode to the crimes on his own moped. I mean, how stupid do you have to be? I mean, you don't drive your own car if you're going to if you're going to steal something. So I question whether he would be able to get away with a murder like like these. I mean, it just seems he's too stupid for that. It also seems a far leap from committing a few petty crimes to murder just to embarrass a few people that irked him as an officer. I mean, yeah, I'm not buying that. Finally, and I guess most importantly, there seems to be no connection to the actual murders themselves, with even Seabrook or Baldock failing to make a connection to the Hammersmith nude murders. For these reasons, I consider the officer a pretty weak suspect. Now, Tommy Butler is another police officer that had been named as a Jack the Stripper suspect. Detective Chief Superintendent Butler was named as the man behind the murders by former criminal-turned-whistleblower Jimmy Evans in his book, Survivors. In truth, there seems no evidence or link to the murders, and it does seem that Evans merely holds a grudge against Butler. Butler died five years after the final murder in the series and was dead long before the allegations made by Evans. The Profomo affair led to the trial, conviction, and ultimately the suicide of Stephen Ward. Many, however, believe that Ward was set up by corrupt officers paid by labor MPs to help bring down the government at the time, run by conservatives. Two of these officers are believed to have threatened prostitutes into giving false evidence against Ward. One of the officers died in 1966 from a heart attack. At the time of his death, the first officer had 30,000 pounds in his bank account, which seemed to be hard to account for. The theory is that it was money earned through helping with the cover-up. His partner went to Australia the same year, then seemingly vanished off the face of the planet. Interestingly, various stories have also circulated over the years that police at Hendon suspected a police officer who fled to Australia. Could that officer be the same one that was involved in the Profumo affair? One theory is that the two officers, as part of the cover-up, killed the prostitutes that didn't comply or that were felt could unravel the cover-up. On one hand, the pair makes for interesting suspects. However, that is only if you believe all the victims were involved in the trial of Stephen Ward. But this isn't the case, at least as far as we know. Francis Brown was involved as a witness, and there are also several that believe Hannah Tailford may have been too, but there's no evidence any of the other victims were linked at all. In 1921, at just 15 years of age, Harold Jones was convicted of the murder of two young girls in Albertillery, Wales. His first victim was 8-year-old Freda Burnell. Harold lured her into a shed where he sexually assaulted her and brutally attacked her. Then, later that night, dumped her body in a nearby lane. The following morning, her body was found. Jones was eventually charged with her murder. The jury struggled to believe a 15-year-old boy could be responsible for such a horrible crime and he was found not not guilty. Upon his release, Harold Jones was given a hero's welcome by the town of Albertillery, as they too couldn't believe that a 15-year-old boy from the village had been responsible. In their eyes, it had to have been an outsider. Sadly, their belief in the innocence of a 15-year-old boy would come back to bite them in the ass. Just weeks after his release, Harold Jones would murder 11-year-old Florence Little. 
Jones lured young Florence into his house before cutting her throat in the kitchen, then dragging her into his attic. This time, Harold didn't get away with that crime. Due to his age, Harold Jones avoided the death penalty and was released after serving 20 years in 1941. In 1947, he surfaced in London, and from all known accounts, he went on to marry and have a daughter, and generally lead a normal, happy family life. However, author Neil Milkins believes Jones may be responsible for the Hammersmith nude murders. After researching for a book on the Aunt Albertillery murders Jones committed, Milkins kept researching what Jones did after his release from prison. Milkins discovered that Harold Jones lived just a few streets away from three of the victims at various times. Milkins also found that Jones had been working as a sheet metal worker, meaning he would have used industrial paint similar to the type found on several of the victims. This and other findings all seemed too much of a coincidence to Milkins, and so he claimed Harold Jones could well have been the murderer known as Jack the Stripper. Unfortunately, record-keeping isn't what it is nowadays, and so police never knew they had a convicted murderer living so close to the crimes. Thus, Harold Jones was never a suspect in the Hammersmith nude murders. Harold Jones is an interesting suspect, though. On the one hand, Neil Milkins makes an extremely strong case for Jones as the killer, and surely if police had known a convicted murderer lived near to where the crimes were committed, he would have been a suspect in their eyes too. It has to be added, though, that there are no, there is no actual evidence that Jones had any connection to any of the victims or the case at all. The method is also different as Jones didn't kill either of his victims by asphyxiation. Also, why would he stop at Bertie O'Hara's murder, as Jones didn't die until 1971. Finally, was Jones too old to be Jack the Stripper anyway? He was 58 at the time of the final murder, so... Eh. What I found interesting when looking into those murders is how unaware of the crimes most people are. Even amongst those interested in true crime stories, I couldn't find a whole lot of information on it anywhere. I found a couple of articles, which is where I pieced together the episode. Jack the Stripper is among the most prolific killers in the United Kingdom. Yet, mention his name and most will think that you've mistaken him for Jack the Ripper. Or that you must be talking about a Black Sabbath song. With it now being more than 50 years since the Hammersmith nude murders took place, and with so little in the way of evidence, the sad truth is that it is unlikely the man known as Jack the Stripper will ever be revealed. It is just as likely to be an unknown suspect as it is any of the various ones that have been named, though I'm sure over time other names and suspects will be put forward. If I had to go with a current suspect, I suppose I would lean towards Harold Jones, purely because he was a known murderer, he lived in the area at the time, and I'm sorry, but murderers, if they do it once and they do it twice and they get away with it, they're going to keep doing it. I'm just saying. You know what? That's what robbery is. That's what all criminals do it. If you get away with it once, you get away with it twice, you're going to just keep doing it. Anyways, what do you guys think? 
And you know what's coming. That's right. And with that, we've come to the end of the episode. I thank you for joining me here today. And I hope that you'll take some time to reach out to me and share your thoughts on what you think about today's episode. You can always reach me and the show at darkenigmapodcast at gmail.com. And if you have a suggestion for a future show, you want to share what you think, or you just need somebody to talk to, drop me a line because I do reply to every single email. And on that note, that's all the time I have for you this evening. I thank you for joining me here on Renegade Talk Radio. And you guessed it, don't forget to tune in next time. See you, my heathens. I love you. We don't sugarcoat shit. 